plunged unto this country, a stranger I be. I courted a fair maiden, Nancy was her name. I courted her for love, her love I didn't obtain. Do you think I've any reason or right to complain? I rode to see my Nancy, I rode both day and night. I courted dearest Nancy, my own heart's true delight. I rode to see my Nancy, I rode both night and day. Till I noticed a stallion, both white looking and gray. The sheriff's men had followed and overtaken me. They carted me away to the penitentiary. They opened up the door and then they shoved me in. They shaved off my head and they cleared off my chin. They beat me and they banged me. They fed me on dry beans. I wish to my own heart I'd never been a thief. With my hands in my pockets, my cap set on so bold, and my coat of all colors like Jacob's of old. When first unto this country, a stranger I came. I courted a fair maiden, and she was her. It's midday on Main Street. The sun shines high in a clear sky and your sneakers step softly on the red brick path. Your lunch is over, your plans are finished, but you feed the meter another quarter nevertheless as you're not quite able to turn yet toward home. You choose instead to walk through town. It's winter still and the avenues are populated only with those resilient figures for whom the weather does not apply. They're paid to be here, some of them. Others have errands that can't wait until it's warm. And they go about their duties with an added sense of furious obligation, cursing themselves and their loved ones for needing anything at all. But you've chosen only to walk and watch them. You search their faces for one you recognize, but you see only strangers. When did they arrive in this town, you wonder? Or have they been here all along? Noticing you, moving past you buying groceries or sending mail, following you a few cars behind just to see what you would do, what they could get away with. Even in the bright sun, they seem suddenly shadowed and tense, their looks of neutral composure changing into malevolent hostility. It's you who's the guest, the stranger, the figure looking at the edges, muttering oaths to himself. The buildings themselves, the ones so familiar you hardly register their shapes and lines, appear now the casters of shadows, their doors locked, their windows dark, their rooms containing secrets that mean to do you harm. And in the midst of this great tectonic shift, in which the very path on which you step seems rigid and unkind, you hear a boombox blast from a passing car, and the speakers say, This is Clear the Dance Floor with Colby Smith on Radio Free Brooklyn.
And it's true, everybody. Welcome to Radio Free Brooklyn. This is Clear the Dance Floor. I'm your host, Colby Smith. I'm here with you until the 5 o'clock hour. And this is a talk show, folks. And I'm happy to be here with you. And our number is 718-673-8201. And I want to go to the phones right away because we have a very special guest on the line. Uh, but one of the things that we like to do at the station, and I like for this show to be a part of it, is is the motto of the station is what Brooklyn sounds like. And so I'm I'm happy today to debut the first of what I'm going to call our Voices of America series. Now, the guest on the line, guest, can you hear me? I can. Colby, can you hear me? I can hear you great. So I just want to give you a little bit of context for the for the listeners and then I'll I'll, I'll get back to you, okay? Oh, that's fine. Thank you so much. Yeah, so so this guy on the line, he's he's you're 89 years old. Uh, I am, uh, sorry, 67 years old. 67, okay. I just have an old-sounding voice. Oh, gotcha, gotcha, 67. So you have seen sort of, when we talk about history, you know, when we talk about what Brooklyn sounds like, we talk about what America sounds like, you have seen, you know, some of the kind of great 20th century shifts happen, you know, some of the major historical events, and and, and we're doing this, this thing on the station where, we're asking the generations to call in and tell us what some of the major historical events are that they live through and what what they, what people feel is sort of the most significant event that they saw in their lifetime. So do you, do you want to go ahead and introduce yourself and, and just kind of talk about what uh, what that event is? Sure. Um, sure. I, I, that would be wonderful. Thank you so much for this time, Colby. That's my pleasure. Oh, boy. Uh, well, uh, my name is Jackie Haswell. Um, I was born in the year 1956 in Carroll Gardens. And, um, yeah, it's interesting, Colby, you mentioned that about living through events of the 20th century. And the, the phrase that I have oft heard repeated is that historical events are not very much fun to live through. Have you heard that, Colby? Absolutely. Yeah. That's right. I you you don't they they look interesting in a history book, but you don't much want to be uh, the one living through them. You want to be the one reading about them in a history book, and I I envy you in that way, Colby. I I truly do. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, you have. I mean, remind me again what year you were born. Uh, I was 56? born in the year 1956. 56, yeah, okay. So when you're a kid, you know, the Korean War has just ended. You know, the, the, the Red Scare is kind of happening throughout that decade. And then when you're mm-hmm. coming of age, mm-hmm. you know, there's all the, the Vietnam protests and all that stuff. I mean, you, you've you've seen just by advantage or by, by the advantage of, of your age, you know, some, some amazing, some amazing, you know, kind of historical events happen in this country. And I, I'm just wondering for you just kind of while we're on theme here, you know, what would you say is the mm-hmm. biggest one, you know, the one that resonates the most with you? Uh, well, you know, it's it's interesting. It's kind of you to say the advantage of my age, Colby, but it doesn't often feel like an advantage because of the yeah. things that I have seen. I have seen so many. I would say, though, looking back, that the most significant event in my lifetime and I think many people my age would agree the most significant event of our lifetime mm-hmm. uh, was in the year 1993 when Nirvana did MTV Unplugged. I, I, I'm sorry, Jackie. You say uh, 
it was Nirvana doing MTV Unplugged in 1993. Yeah, that's right. He was, um, well, they, they recorded it and it was broadcast in 1993. Some people may be more familiar. The album, the double album was released in 1994. Um, uh -huh. But the 1993, when the Unplugged, uh, when that taping was done and played on air, I mean, that was a tectonic shift for everyone in my generation. Interesting. I, I just want to. I want to make sure that you heard my question correctly. I, I'm not trying to argue with you or anything, but my my question was, you know, for your for your generation, you know, being born in '56 and, and and seeing, you know, kind of the back half of the 20th century unfold. What do you think is the most important kind of historic event that you've that you've witnessed? Oh, you mean oh, uh, so as a as a boomer, as a baby boomer, yeah, you mean yeah. um, which you know, okay, boomer, as a baby boomer. <laughs> You're right. Yeah, I would say I, I think I can I think I can fairly speak for all baby boomers when I say that the most significant event for our entire generation was um, MTV releasing the Nirvana episode of Unplugged in 1993. Okay, so you you got you got it right the first time. I guess I guess I'm just surprised that you know some of the stuff that I mentioned is not kind of coming to mind for you. I mean, like, you know, you were, you're, you're born in 56. So you're like, uh, you're like seven years old when, when like John F. Kennedy is assassinated. That didn't resonate with you. The Kennedy, the Kennedy assassination, Colby, what you need to know is I understand how it can look, you know, as a young person today, looking back on historical, historical events of yesterday, Things are often overblown, you know, things are blown out of proportion. Overblown? And the amount of shock, overblown, the amount of shock that we all felt, you know, it, it wasn't all that shocking at the time. Most of us had seen it coming for a long time. It was just a matter of when. You saw coming John F. Kennedy getting assassinated. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think all of us did, really. It was all, yeah, even at seven years old. At seven years, okay, yeah, were, at seven years old. We sorry. would do the weather report in the morning, and we would have to take turns putting up, you know, if it's a sunny day or a cloudy day, and then the teacher would say, and who wants to guess if John F. Kennedy's going to get assassinated today? And we would all guess, and, uh, you know, all of us guessed wrong until that one fateful day, Gino Baroni guessed it right. And, you know, uh -huh. that was a, a fun day for him. And not a surprising day for the rest of us. Okay, I, I mean, just did you did you like grow up with like a father in the CIA or something? Like how, how I just this is blowing me away. How you knew that the president was going to get assassinated and that you didn't it didn't like rock your world at all? Oh no, no father. My father was a butcher. Um, you know, I it did rock any of our worlds. Really, it was just. It's the kind of thing that, with hindsight, people tend to think, "Oh, this must have been surprising." But really, all of us were just like, oh, "You're making a lot of enemies, John. You're making mm -hmm. a lot of enemies." Sure, 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 sure. Yeah. Well, that's that's interesting. I yeah, I guess this is the the value of talking to people like you is that that uh, I I would never have guessed that 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 wasn't a tremendously traumatic day to, to be a kid. Mm. No, just sad day. He seemed to be a good person, you know. It was a sad day, but it was not at all surprising. Uh -huh. No, no. Most people, when it happened, they were like, "Oh, today, 
It happened today. Right. I had my money on Thursday. Wow. Wow, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm just kind of, like I said, this is kind of rocking my world, uh, you, you saying this. I'm looking here at your, your pre-interview notes from my, my producer, and about, mm. about the day, you know, uh, this day in November 1963 when, when, when Kennedy assassinated, you, you, you write a story here where you say, I came home from school and I was distraught. My mother said, did you hear the news? I said, how did you know? She said, well, it's on all the TV stations. And you said, it's on all the TV stations that I got beat up by Ricky Jim again today? That's right. That's right. I, that was the thing that was surprising to me when I got home. I was like, I didn't see a camera when I was getting my teeth pounded in by Ricky Jim in that back alley that yeah. day. He took me out of the back alley behind the school and he told me, he was going to beat me so hard, I'd never be able to whistle again. Oh, my God. On the day that John F. Kennedy was shot, you got beat up by your school yeah. bully. Yeah, you know, it's I. that was by far the thing that stood out to me that day the most. was just, I was so worried. Yeah. I got two of my front teeth beat out that same day, and I came home, and I was like, Ma, wow. you're telling me they had a TV camera in that back alley? I was looking around for help. I'm going, where's an adult? Where's an adult? You're telling yeah, me yeah. they had some kind of an adult in that back alley. Right. They're filming it. And they're Meanwhile, get to NBC. they're all glued to the TV screen, like, so they can't help mm-hmm. you. I, I get you. Yeah, I mean, that's that's uh, that's tough. Well, again, like I said, this is maybe the value of uh, of, of having you on, just because I, I wouldn't have known what kind of what the mood was on that, that day. Um, but I mean, can I ask you about a couple of other? I mean, I don't want to act like I'm I'm puncturing holes in your Nirvana answer, but I, I just since I've got you here, can I ask you about a couple of other things that I would have expected to hear? Oh sure, sure. You know, I I think you'll find that none of them are as as big or as surprising as the history books paint them to be. Okay, well, I guess I'll I guess I'll find it. I, I mean, so just tracking the the kind of the the years here. I mean, so like the Vietnam War, you know, is kind mm-hmm. of it's it's really ratcheting up when you're you know I guess in your in high school and in your teenage years and and that kind of thing. I mean you know what was the mood at your school for example? I mean did you attend any protests or or know anyone who got drafted? No, I didn't. I actually wasn't aware that protesting was going on. Um, you know the area where I lived was very neutral on the war. Um, people, it was one of those things where most of us were like, oh, there's a war going on. Oh, so um, we had people. There were people who were getting recruited. You know, when the war ended, I was nineteen years old. Not -hmm. not drafted. They were getting recruited to join willingly. Oh, they were getting recruited. They had, you know, in addition to the draft, they did have the, you know, the compulsory uh, recruitment booths at all of the high schools and libraries and government Uh buildings. Right. So I had a few friends who were recruited and uh, I was, you know, eligible for the draft based on my age right around the time that it ended. And some of the people that I knew who were older in school had gotten drafted in. But um, everyone came back and uh, said, uh, yeah, it's, um, you know, it was a war. What more do you want? They they weren't traumatized or or or. Anything? No, I. You know, this could just be luck of the draw. But everyone that I knew personally who went over there had a very mild time. 
and said that it was, you know, it was war. They weren't gonna, they weren't gonna miss words about it. It was war. Mm-hmm. And war is bad, but um, you know, was war. Yeah. Yeah, I, I guess uh, again, this is just uh, this is just sh- uh, shocking uh, uh, to me. I mean, I you know, you like you anybody, you know, it's like by osmosis, you don't even have to seek it out. You hear like crazy stories about people, you know, being in the jungle for years and they don't even know who they are, and there's all these d- drugs kind of floating around, all this opium and and, uh, and that that kind of stuff. And I mean, like apocalypse now is going on and and it's stuff like that. It just you're you're saying that that's all kind of an invention of Hollywood. I'm I'm telling you right now, this is the first time that I'm hearing about a jungle being involved in that war. I was not familiar with most of the nuances of uh, what separated the Vietnam War from the other conflicts that the United States had gotten into. Oh, my God. You didn't even know anyone, like, at school or anything who were, like, hippies and involved in the peace movement or anything like that? No, you know, most of us, uh, as I said, I grew up in Carroll Gardens. It was just a very straightforward neighborhood. We kept our heads oh down, and, uh, you know, we just uh, lived our lives. Sure. Okay, yeah. Well, I mean, let me – I can see I'm not getting anywhere with this. I mean, like, I just, I'm just going to ask you straight out. The moon landing happens when you're 13. You're 13 years old. Astronauts mm-hmm. land on the moon. I mean, do you remember that? Did that make an impact on you? So the moon landing was broadcast on channels. At the time, there were only four TV channels. Right. We have to understand. The moon landing was broadcast on channels one, three, and four. Uh, but Gunsmoke was playing on channel two, and I was watching Gunsmoke at the time. You were watching Gunsmoke when they landed on the moon? Yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, it was a very popular show at the time. Burt Reynolds had been on the show. Sure. At the time in 1969, Burt Reynolds would have been off of the show for, I think, four years at that point in time. But mm. I tuned in most days just on the off chance that he would have another cameo appearance. Right, right. You know, because we, 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 don't, we don't have internet like we do now. You would have no idea what was in store for Burt Reynolds. No, that's what you had to understand about that point in time. You know, everyone was very excited. Everyone was waiting to hear. You know, it was a very dangerous mission, and we weren't sure if Burt Reynolds' agent had managed to get him back on Gunsmoke. So we were all tuning in and hoping for the best, just hoping to see some sign of, you know, life and positivity for the American people on Channel 2. God, I just, yeah, I'm just just kind of reeling here, Jackie, because my... My idea of what the kind of, like, arc of the, like, latter, the post-war years mm-hmm. was like has just been, you've just been shattering it. You've just, you've been cleaving it in two. It's, uh, you know, it's really not. The, the 20th century wasn't such a big deal, Colby. <laughs> it wasn't you know, a big deal. This, no, this much, I, I'm telling you that 1993 had the biggest, most explosive event of my entire life to this day. Mm-hmm. And it was so explosive because, you know, up until that point, you know, Nirvana, they were just, they had only played electric guitars. Right. Well, the thing is that they played electric on MTV Unplugged, too. Uh-huh. They refused to fully unplug, you know. They go, oh, yeah. Nirvana, they go straight at the heart of the thing when they agree to do something. You can't unplug Nirvana. Mm-hmm. They're going to go right for you. 
Yeah, yeah, I, I guess so. I guess so. Well, I mean, uh, could you talk a little bit more about uh, about that? I mean, you, when you say that it was this, that this was the case for you and for you know your entire gener- other people you know, you know, you heard from other people that they agree with you. I get you're not just assuming that. Oh sure. Oh no. You can talk to anyone, anyone I grew up with. You know, anyone that I see now. You can talk to any of us, any person on the street that looks like a boomer. If you go up to them and you say, the man who sold the world, they're going to say it's a decent Bowie song, but a terrific Kurt Cobain song. (laughs) Okay. I guess I just, I I don't know. I have a hard time believing this. I mean, it's it's hard for me to believe that that was even on your radar. I mean, like, how old were you in 1993? You were like, you were almost 40 years old. Colby, 1993, I'm 37 years old at the time. Uh-huh. And what you have to understand is that Kurt Cobain was in withdrawal while they were recording this. He was right. physically in withdrawal. I don't know what you know about being in withdrawal. You can hardly sit up straight, let alone go 45 minutes, plus two extra songs that weren't included in the original broadcast. Uh-huh. You know, they did the whole thing in one take. Colby. That's, I, this I is it. They're not cutting. They're not editing. That, yeah, that's 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 wild. That's that is impressive. I'll give you that, Jackie. It's amazing. It's amazing, Colby. They but, brought out members of the band, the Meat Puppets. MTV said that they wanted them to have guest stars on the show. They were doing this. MTV Unplugged has been around for maybe four years at mm-hmm. the time. Yeah, it's a ratings juggernaut. The MTV. But people, for the most part, Colby, they're treating it like Madison Square Garden with acoustic guitars. Do you know what I mean? I do. I, 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 I'm understanding. They're out cameos. Conceptually. They're treating it like Kevin J. Dolan, owner of the New York Knicks. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, I mean, we're, but were you into were, you were into music before Nirvana? Like something a little more your generation? Like were you into like uh, like Creedence Clearwater Revival and like people like that? Never my thing. Frankly, never, never my thing. thing. I was aware thing. of music. The people in Carroll Gardens were aware of music, but I would say that none of us ever went particularly far out of our way outside of when somebody in the neighborhood would have a whistle and then all of us would be transfixed for, uh, I mean, hours, Colby. Okay. Hours. Oh, okay. Interesting. Interesting. A whistle that did it for you. Okay. So, but but clearly, you know, now you're you're a little bit more of like a pop culture guy i guess right not especially okay. no no well, i would say my interest in popular culture began and ended in 1993 well i guess i i have the answer to my next question for you then jackie which was you know you're you're 11 years old when star wars comes out in 1977 and and i you know you see all this archival footage of people like lining up around the block to see it at their local Theater, and I'm, I'm guessing now you were you did not count yourself among those who were waiting for that. Kobe, I just have one question for you. Uh huh. Star what now? Star Wars. Come on, you know what Star Wars is, Jackie. I'm not familiar. As I said, Carol Gardens. You know, we kept our heads down. We weren't very well versed in whatever conflict the United States was involved in mm-hmm. at the time. I don't know anyone personally who was drafted into the Star Wars. Okay, all right. Well, 
Well, it's a movie. It was a it was a movie, Jackie, that came out in the 70s. There's been a million sequels and all these TV shows now. Are you a Disney Plus subscriber? I I am not. I I tend not to subscribe to many things mm. outside of, you know, philosophies and uh general um, you know, the occasional newsletter. Sure, sure. Matt 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 Tiabi really does it for you, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, okay. So we're talking late seventies. I mean, here, surely you had a car uh, when you were growing up, right? I I did not have a car. You I grew didn't... up in Brooklyn, and uh, you know, mostly just commuted using the subway. Well, I guess then you have no thoughts about the gas shortage in the late seventies, which is where I was going next. Frankly, I had no idea there was a shortage of gas. Okay. All right. You know, anytime anybody in my neighborhood made rugula. Uh, there certainly wasn't a shortage of gas in my neighborhood. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> From Rukula? <laughs> That's all it takes. A Jewish pastry made everybody farty? You give the right guy the right Rukula. Yeah, sure. I guess all that, I'm saying. that makes sense. You know, everybody's got a different system. Maybe it just affected your, your neighborhood in a unique way. I think so. All I'm saying is come to Carroll Gardens on a Sunday afternoon. <laughs> You'll see what I mean. Okay. Well, let me let me ask you let me ask you about a couple more quick things, then I'll let you go. Okay. Of course, it's, it's, of and course. thank you for being for for your time and for being so uh, uh, you know so so open and honest here today. Oh my God! Of course, as an aged person, I love nothing more than to talk at length. <laughs> So you you were saying earlier, sort of at the beginning of the call, that every everybody in your school, even at seven, knew that JFK was going to get the bullet, right? It was absolutely just a matter of when. Is that how everybody felt when when Reagan was shot in eighty one? Absolutely. The only surprise was that it didn't happen in eighty. <laughs> Everybody thought it was going to happen before he was elected president, while he was running for president. I'm telling you, Colby, that man was making a lot of enemies. Yeah, yeah. He was making a lot of enemies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, making a lot of making a lot of friends too. I guess this guy wins. Well, wins a like lot crazy. Of people think a lot of people thought at the time that Reagan was just being elected, so that. Somebody would know where he was and when he was going to be there if you catch my drift. Oh, I see. Yeah, I, I guess I do catch your drift, Jackie. They were trying to put him in the right place at the right time. Okay, all right. Well, what about a couple years later when the wall falls, the Berlin Wall falls down in 89? What, 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 do you, did, did that register for you? Um, the, I, I was not aware that that one had fallen. Is that the, that's now, what? correct me if I'm wrong, that's the one that's visible from space, correct? No, that's the Great Wall of China. The Berlin, the Berlin Wall separated East and West Berlin throughout the entire Cold War. People were like trying to climb over it to get to the West to be free. They were shot by guards. There's all this terrible uh, death and destruction associated with that thing. And it, the symbol of it coming down is like, it, it's, it was, it, it, it's something people remember. Oh, I, I, I think that's the thing right there, Colby. I've never been to Berlin myself. You don't I have mostly... to. You, you don't have to have been there. 
Well, I, as I said, the people in Carroll Gardens, we just kind of keep our heads down. Yeah. I, uh, yeah. Maybe you should pick, uh, pick them up once in a while. Ever think about that? You know, I... We just, we are who we are. You know, we notice what we notice. We notice the major things and everything else. It's just kind of like water off yeah. a duck's back. Sure. I'm sure if something, I'm sure if this Berlin Wall had been a big enough historical event, I would have heard of it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I guess maybe if Nirvana had done their their uh, set, a global broadcast from the from the, the bodies buried under the wall, maybe they would pay attention then. Now, that would have been amazing. <laughs> Because I'm telling you right now, Kurt Cobain, if you get him, you think he's good indoors. You put him outdoors, mm. and you would have been able to see how much of the world he would have been able to fill wow. up with just his voice. I guess, yeah, I guess uh, I guess so. I mean, you, 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 it's, it's hard to argue with that. It's hard to argue with that, Jackie. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I want to get to some other callers, uh, and I want to say to you, thank you again for, for, for devoting so much of your time here for us on a Sunday afternoon. Did you have any kind of parting words for for me or for the audience listening about, uh, you know, just maybe something from from history that they might not know that they should know? <sighs> Let's see. I would say the only other big event that really stood out to me was uh, probably, uh, September 11th, 2001. Oh, sure. I mean, yeah, I guess I, I, I definitely should have asked about that. I mean, that's even for a lot of other generations there, they remember where they were on that day. I mean, tell me about that. Yeah. Well, that was a big one. That was a big one. Finally, finally, we have something with you. Okay. Let's, let's hear it. Let's hear it. I'm sorry. I just, I'm really pumped up about this. Um, my father was 75 years old. And we were, we had made the choice. He had emphysema real bad. So we had made the choice to move him to a rest home, you know, where he couldn't have consistent care. And we were moving him out of the childhood home where I grew up. And as we were moving him out, we moved one of the couches and behind the couch was a whistle that we had thought that we'd lost when I was, I mean, maybe seven or eight years old. This whistle had been waiting back there for over 30 years Mm -hmm. to be discovered again. And no matter how bad his emphysema was, my father took one look at that whistle and he picked it up and he blew through that whistle. Mm -hmm. And I'm telling you, everybody in Carroll Gardens, we were dancing for hours. It was the best music that we had heard for eight years Mm -hmm. since MTV Unplugged with the band Nirvana. Yeah, Nirvana, yeah. Okay, but so what happened when the towers fell? The what now? The World Trade Center towers were hit by planes on September 11th, 2001, and they collapsed, killing over a thousand people. Are you sure? Because I feel like I would have heard about that. I'm sure, Jackie. I'm sure. I mean, the next thing you're going to tell well, me is that you, you had no idea the Cuban Missile Crisis was happening. The, oh, that one I remember. That was terrible. There we go. Yep. There we go. Oh, my God. That was, I had completely forgotten about that. That one was, that was really touch and go. All the kids in my school were terrified. Yeah. And the teachers were coming in, and they were coaching us about what to do, you know, how to handle the grief, how to handle the stress. And, um... 
you know, I I just don't think that if a trade embargo hadn't been reached, or if a trade agreement hadn't been reached, I don't think we ever would have gotten through that. Yeah. As, as soon as those whistles started blowing back into my neighborhood, the, the children could dance again. Oh, hold on, hold on. Did you say whistles? Yes, uh, you're referring to 1962, the Cuban whistle crisis. Oh, like, my God. <laughs> hey, Jackie, we got we to gotta go. I'm sorry. My producer's telling me we got to move on. Uh, so I, I just I don't think we're going to get any farther today so i just i want to thank you again for 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 for, uh telling us all about the way things were oh thank you thank you very much for having me and check out Gunsmoke. burt reynolds was on it for three solid years it was wonderful okay all right i'll get i'll get right to that thanks jackie okay thank you colby all right you take care now bye 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 the radio free brooklyn voices of america the voices of america special folks uh that's that's where what we're doing Today, thank you to Jackie Haswell for for calling in. Uh, and if anybody else out there has a, is, you know, has a, a uh, historical event from their generation that they think is worthwhile to talk about, that number is seven one eight six seven three eight two zero one. That's seven one eight six seven three eight two zero one. If you want to call into the Voices of America special. Talk about the uh, uh, talk about the the, the housing uh, bubble bursting in two thousand eight. Maybe the uh, uh, tragic effects on the economy that happened all through that. I mean, I know a couple people who, are, who graduated around then who could maybe talk about what how scary it was to kind of go into uh, the economy graduating from college. Gen X, you know, there's uh, there's all kinds of stuff. We haven't talked about Bill Clinton's presidency, presidency at all, or uh, uh, zero one is that number seven one eight six seven three eight two zero one. And it's a very serious record. And when you do, I mean, it's it's, it's not lighthearted, and it just seems like you're really going deep, deep with your feelings about your worry about the the times we're in, in the United States and this and the status of it, and what we may or may not have learned as a country. It seems not, in a certain way, distant from you know, like Highway 61 or early records where you describe a pretty you know, difficult situation in the country and, you know, where things are looking well, but now it doesn't seem, nothing in, nothing in your record seems to indicate anything has gotten better, if not worse, in your view of what's going on in America. Well, America's a different place than it was when, when, the, when that, um, others, those other records were made. It was a different place. Mm-hmm. Um, um, it, it was more like Europe used to be, uh, whereas you know every territory was different, every county was different, every state was different, mm-hmm. different culture, different architecture, different food. Um, you could go a hundred miles, and it would be like going from uh, um, you know Stalingrad to Paris or something. Um, whereas it's not that way anymore. 
what it's is. all homogenized. It's pretty much all the same. Um, you know, people wear the same clothes, uh, eat the same food, think the same things. Um, so, um, this style of music, you know, which punctuates my music, comes from an older period of time, mm -hmm. a period of time which, which I lived through. So it's it's um, very accessible to me. As someone who was not around that period of time, it wouldn't be accessible to. So for them, it would be just more of a revivalist thing or a, or a historical thing. First time I went to, ever went to London, which was like in maybe really early '61. Mm -hmm. First time I went to London, they still had the rubble and the damaged buildings from Hitler's bombs. Mm -hmm. um, that was how close that that the, the, the complete destruction of Europe was was to the period of time that, that I was coming up. And um, Robert Johnson had just died three years before I was born. You know, the, the, all, all, the, all the great original artists were, were, were still there to be heard, felt and seen, you know. And, uh, you know, the, the, it, once that gets, you know, into your blood, it, it, you, you, you can't get rid of it that easily, you know. When, what gets into So, that whole culture period of time, that, uh, that, that old America. That you think the old America, the 20s and the 30s and the 40s and the 50s? Well, well, look, you know, it wouldn't have made sense to talk to somebody who, who was, um, say, in their, say, in the, in, in the uh, 50s. It wouldn't have made sense to, to, to ask people from the you know, older generation what was it like in the, in the, in the late 1800s mm -hmm. or, early or early 1900s. It wouldn't have made sense. It, didn't, wouldn't have, it, wouldn't have, uh, it, it, it wouldn't have interested anybody. But for some reason, you know, the 50s and 60s interests people now. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, a, a part of the reason, if not the whole reason, as I think, is that that's when the atom bomb went off. Mm -hmm. The atom bomb gave, fueled the, the entire world that came after it. When the atom bomb went off, it, it, it showed that, uh, you know, indiscriminate killing. You know, mm -hmm. homicide on a mass level. Mm -hmm. uh, the ability to destroy. The yeah. World. Whereas, if you look at, at at every other at warfare up until that point, I mean, you had to see somebody, you know, to to uh, uh, to shoot them or mm -hmm. man them, or you had to see somebody. You just about had to look at them. Whereas you don't have to do that anymore. Well, I mean, just the atom bomb is like the first time that. Looks that man looks at possibly destroying the entire world. Well, it's, it's I think so. They can do that entire, I think entire so. thing, which we never had before. I think so, and and not only that, but but I'm sure it. I'm sure that fueled all aspects of society. I know it. I know it. Uh, it it uh, gave rise to the music we were playing. I mean, when you look at all these early performers, they were atom bomb fueled. You know, Jerry Lee, Carl Perkins, you know, Buddy Holly, Elvis. Dean Vincent, Eddie Cochran. How, how were the atom bomb fueled? They're, they were fast and furious. Their, their, their songs were all on the edge. Um, whereas it, music was never like that before, lyrically. I mean, you had the old blues singers, but Ma Rainey wasn't singing about the stuff that uh, Carl Perkins was singing about, or Jerry Lee. Mm -hmm. Nobody was singing that type of uh, fire and destruction. Mm -hmm. um, and then uh, 
but they paid a heavy price for that because uh, you know obviously the older generation took notice and um, um, kind of got rid of them as, as quickly as they could recognize them. So Jerry Lee, well Jerry Lee, they, Jerry Lee. Trail Marcus folk music, a Bob Dylan biography at seven. From the second chapter on the lonesome death of Hattie Carroll from 1963, a track on Bob Dylan. writing about music in 1965. Music and politics. Music as a form of the argument over the good, how to make a commonwealth where we all might find a way to see the good plain, but also the music and politics, the presence of harmony and dissonance as people argued over this election, that law, that speech, the crowd's response, was all I wrote about. It seemed then that the connections between the two were simple, obvious, and overwhelming. There was a sense of change beginning to gather force, and everything was a part of it. There were no barriers between what now might be called different forms of discourse. You couldn't talk about anything. The Top 40, Lyndon Johnson, movies, 19th century novels, the Vietnam War, architecture, marriage, school, food, or even the weather, without talking about everything else. We made love last night, a friend said of his wife and himself at the time. I couldn't help it. I shouted out, take that, LBJ. Everything was held together, made into a single subject. That came from the sense of the world out of joint, out of fear, out of jeopardy, and of absolute uncertainty, the immediate legacy of the assassination of President Kennedy in 1963. With the civil rights movement blocked from outside and fragmenting within, it came from a sense of a country where promises were made and promises were broken or betrayed. It came from an unending war that for those born just before or during World War II, or in the glow of that victory over evil left behind, was discrediting the country with its own evil, bringing the whole idea of the country into question. Nothing was finished, and everything was linked to everything else because all these things were an engine of history, powering a sense that history was unwritten, that it was being written as you or anyone else walked down the street, with the street now transformed into a combination of theater and public square. A deep feeling for history, the legacy that the past gives to the president, the legacy and burden of keeping the promises the past made or refuting them for good, coupled with an awareness of the peculiar contingency of any present moment, has always been at the heart of the best criticism. A year later, I discovered Pauline Kael's I Lost It at the Movies. She'd been writing that way since the mid-50s, mostly in pieces swirled off in hard-to-find film journals or broadcasts on a left-wing Berkeley FM radio station where few people knew that the FM on their radio was for. The same station that was playing Bob Dylan's Blowin' in the Wind in 1963. It is a no, and somebody had to say it, she said in 1955 in The Glamour of Delinquency. For the first time in American history, we have a widespread nihilistic movement. So nihilistic, it doesn't even have a program. And ironically, its only leader is a movie star, Marlon Brando. Now that enveloping critical voice was everywhere, it was everyday talk. 
That voice that's something you could catch every time. That voice was something you could catch every time you turned on AM radio. Whether you were hearing the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, the Miracles, the Animals, the Supremes, or a hundred other people. Half of whom, it seemed, you hadn't heard of the day before. The voice was something that Scoop Nisker, who had gone to summer camp with Bob Dylan and seemed to take that as something to live up to, caught in the line that closed his breakneck freeform college newscasts on KMPX and KSAN in San Francisco. Quote, if you don't like the news, go out and make some of your own, end quote. That could mean making a record, organizing a demonstration, opening a restaurant, or writing a piece about any of those things that ended up being about all of them. This is what it sounded like, what it felt like. Here again is Sandy Darlington, who died in 1989 at 54, writing in 1968 in the San Francisco Express Times about what some people were calling the counterculture and what he called the community, a commonwealth where people were looking for the good, writing about that, and about cream. The guitarist Eric Clapton, the bassist Jack Bruce, who died in 2014 at 71, and the drummer Ginger Baker, who died in 2019 at 80. Three musicians from England who, by the name they chose for themselves, were saying, you want to hear the best music in the world? We'll play it for you. And about the band's first appearance in San Francisco at Winterland Ballroom. An ice skating palace now transformed into what Darlington was uh, was a ref- into what to Darlington was a refugee camp for people dropping out of a world that says remember the Maine into one that says remember Huck Finn, a kind of immigrant processing and indoctrination center like the Lower East Side used to be. Long lines flow out of the doors into the streets like a photo of bread lines in the thirties. Darlington described what it meant for the people in Cream during or just before the World War, Second World War to grow up in post-war Britain. Rationing that lasted into the 1950s, bombs exploding in the ruins that still covered working-class London neighborhoods, a class-based education system. Quote, if you flunk the exams they give you at age 11, you are channeled into into a trade. You apprentice at 14 or 15 for several years, at the end of which time you are a certified metal lathe worker and will be until you die. The people in Cream were in their 20s in 1968, but to Darlington they carried a longer history in their faces, just as their music wiped history off the books and left and left the future a white page on which you could write whatever you choose. Darlington heard Plessy versus Ferguson. He heard the Treaty of Versailles. Today, you can so easily go online and hear the show Darlington was writing about in all its shocking fury, an attack that drove a song like a tank, flew it like a dive bomber, a music that, if it could be summed up in a phrase, might be... No end in sight. Their clothes will always seem baggy. They look and act like medieval British peasants must have done who gathered together on the festival of the Great Wren on St. Stephen's Day, who wore and tore apart a ring. opening of John Dos Passos, the 42nd Parallel.
The young man walks fast by himself through the crowd that thins into the night streets. Feet are tired from hours of walking, eyes greedy for a warm curve of faces, answering flicker of eyes, the set of a head, the lift of a shoulder, the way hands spread and clench, blood tingles with wants. Mind is a beehive of hopes buzzing and stinging. Muscles ache for the knowledge of jobs, for the road mender's pick and shovel work, the fisherman's knack with a hook when he hauls the slithery net from the rail of the lurching trawler, the swing of the bridgeman's arm as he slings down the white hot rivet, the engineer's slow grip wise on the throttle, the dirt farmer's use of his whole body when woeing the mules, he yanks the plow from the furrow. The young man walks by himself searching through the crowd with greedy eyes, greedy ears, taught to hear, by himself, alone. The streets are empty. People have packed into subways, climbed into streetcars and buses. In the stations, they've scampered for suburban trains. They've filtered into lodgings and tenements, gone up in elevators into apartment houses. In a show window, two sallow window dressers in their shirt sleeves are bringing out a dummy girl in a red evening dress. At a corner, welders and masks lean into sheets of blue flame, repairing a cat track. A few drunk bums shamble along. A sad streetwalker fidgets under an arc light. From the river comes the deep, rumbling whistle of a steamboat leaving dock. A tug hoots far away. The young man walks by himself. Fast, but not fast enough. Far, but not far enough. Faces slide out of sight. Talk trails into tattered scraps. Footsteps tap fainter in alleys. He must catch the last subway, the streetcar, the bus. Run up the gangplanks of all the steamboats, register at all the hotels, work in the cities, answer the want ads, learn the trades, take up the jobs, live in all the boarding houses, sleep in all the beds. One bed is not enough. One job is not enough. One life is not enough. At night, head swimming with wants, he walks by himself, alone. No job, no woman, no house, no city. Only the ears busy to catch the speed are not alone. The ears are caught tight, linked tight by the tendrils of phrased words, the turn of a joke, the sing-song fade of a story, the gruff fall of a sentence, linking tendrils of speech twined through the city blocks, spread over pavements, grow out along broad parked avenues, speed with the trucks leaving their long night runs over roaring highways, whisper down sandy by-roads past worn-out farms, joining up cities and filling stations, roundhouses, steamboats, planes groping along airways, words call out on mountain pastures, drift slow rivers widening to the sea, and the hushed beaches. It was not in the long walks through jostling crowds at night that he was less alone, or in the training camp at Allentown, or in the day on the docks at Seattle, or in the empty reek of Washington City hot boyhood summer nights, or in the meal on Market Street, or in the swim off the red rocks at San Diego, or in the bed full of fleas in New Orleans, or in the cold razor wind off the lake, or in the gray faces trembling in the grind of gears in the street under Michigan Avenue, or in the smokers of limited express trains, or walking across country, or riding up in the dry mountain canyons, or the night without a sleeping bag among frozen beet racks in the Yellowstone, or canoeing Sundays on the Knipiac. But in his mother's words telling him about long ago, in his father's telling about when I was a boy, in the kidding stories of uncles, in the lies the kids told at school, the hired man's yarns, the tall tales of the doughboys told after taps. It was the speech that clung to the ears, the link that tingled in the blood. USA. USA is the slice of a continent. USA is a group of holding companies, some aggregations of trade unions, a set of laws bound in calf, a radio network, a chain of moving picture theaters, a column of stock quotations rubbed out and written in by a Western Union boy on a blackboard. 
A public library full of old newspapers and dog-eared history books with protests scrawled on the margins in pencil. USA is the world's greatest river valley, fringed with mountains and hills. USA is a set of big-mouthed officials with too many bank accounts. USA is a lot of men buried in their uniforms in Arlington Cemetery. USA is the letters at the end of an address when you are away from home. But mostly, USA is the speech of the people. Now this has been standing here for centuries. The premier work of man, perhaps, in the whole Western world. And it's without a signature. Shot. A celebration to God's glory and to the dignity of man. Well, all that's left, most artists seem to feel these days, is man. Naked. Poor. the scientists keep telling us is a universe which is disposable. You know, it might be just this one anonymous glory. Of all things, this rich stone forest, this epic chant, this gaiety, this grand choiring shout of affirmation, which we choose when all our cities are dust to stand intact, to mark where we have been, to testify to what we had it in us to accomplish. Our works in stone, in paint, in print are spared, some of them for a few decades or a millennium or two, but everything must finally fall in war or wear away into the ultimate and universal ash. The triumphs and the frauds, the treasures and the fakes, a fact of life. We're going to die. Be of good heart. Cry the dead artists out of the living past. Our songs will all be silenced. But what of it? Go on singing. Maybe a man's name doesn't matter all that much. Radio Free Brooklyn, here at the dance floor. Colby Smith, stay tuned. Oh, Superman. Oh, John. Oh, John.